भ्यम तौम तीन Welcome to an off the beat dance podcast with Amaya and Kiran. I'm Amaya King. I'm a Kuchpudi dancer, dance educator and writer based in Richmond, Virginia. I'm Kiran Ajagopalan and I'm a Bharatanatyam dancer, educator, writer and choreographer based in New Jersey. So this is our very first episode and we are thrilled to share with you that we are together in Richmond, Virginia at the Sai Temple here and we are doing this together live in person and it's really wonderful to see Ame after so many months of not seeing each other in person and the reason why we decided to come together to make this off the beat dance podcast was because we are sincerely interested in making classical Indian dance not only relevant but to also illustrate how urgent and informative our classical dance styles are for not only our generation of practitioners we also wanted to reach out to the next generation of artists that are also coming up so that they can also think about some of the questions that we may not necessarily talk about publicly or that we feel like we just don't have the space or we're not sure if we can bring up such questions and discuss and have meaningful conversations about where dance is going I think one of the unique experiences I had growing up um as a daughter of a dancer is I recall conversations that my mother and her friends who were all dancers would have just talking about dance and and critiquing and each other and asking questions and pontificating and 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 teasing things apart and what I noticed is oftentimes because especially where we are located in in the US we're introduced to dance as a divine cultural heritage it might feel uncomfortable to ask those questions or to feel that it's okay to even have those discussions so having these kind of conversations in a public forum might let you know hey we're doing it join us and it'll be a good time and it's also about understanding that dance has so many opportunities for so many people in ways that we don't necessarily see very visible either through social media or through examples that we see in performances of how to engage critically with your own dance style and also this is a space in which we would like to discuss concrete strategies to make indian classical dance not only more accessible equitable inclusive but also more critical and also more engaged with what is going on in the world around us today jam ta tom ta dhin ta kitta tadhin ganata ta tadhin ganata dai tadhin ganata since this is our first episode um I wanted to start with some of the sans- Sanskrit verses that are um what we often learn early in our dance journeys both with Kuchipudi and um with Bharatanatyam. This is a shlokam that is attributed to um Nandikeshwara Sabhinay Darpana and it goes like this. Yato hastas tato drushti yato drushtis tato manaha yato manas tato bhavo Essentially, the meaning as I learned it was wherever our hands are, that's where our eyes go. Wherever our eyes go, that's where our heart is. Wherever our heart is, that's where the feeling comes from. 
and when we are feeling it, then that um, expression is produced. This is something that um, my mother, Srimati Sarada Jammi, who is my guru and uh, also a Kuchpuri dancer, um, taught me to apply to regular life very early on. Her version of it went something like this. Um, even when you're putting trash in the trash can, your eyes need to follow your hand because otherwise the trash won't make it to the trash can. And it's something that I honestly have carried with me because it got me thinking about this not simply from a dance application but um, how it is not just dance. I think often we'll hear I learn more than dance, I learn about life itself and I think this is a an amusing example of that. And I think it's a great starting point because we all encountered this particular um, stanza or this verse at some point in you know our in our training as a dancer, and different teachers will have different interpretations of this line. And what's really interesting is that when we use the word drishti, drishti can literally mean gaze, but also drishti is intentional gaze. And drishti is also the perception of such gaze. And of course, you know, in a colloquial sense, you know, drishti could also be um, something that is not necessarily a good thing. It could be inauspicious energy coming your way in the form of an evil eye. We call it drishti. So it's kind of one of those phrases where there's a lot to unpackage because if we're looking at it from not only just, you know, the technique point of view, one of the things that I had encountered was, you know, when learning and studying Abhinaya as a technique, not just an abstract language of expression, but you have to use gaze in a very particular way in order to convey something dramaturgically on stage. And so you're taught that this is not only a slokam, which literally dictates technique, but it also is a metaphor for bringing depth and nuance to such technique as well. And so in my experience with this particular um, um, stanza, I actually used it in my high school graduation speech. I was class-elected speaker. And the reason why I used this particular, um, this, this Yato Hasta um, stanza was because I was talking about perception and intentionality. Because for a long time, my identity as a dancer was not really forthcoming, especially when I shifted high schools from St. Louis to Cleveland, I kind of shut up a lot about what I did as a dancer outside of school. But one day I was practicing for another performance and I needed to use a classroom space. And one of the popular girls um, heard some music and was watching me um, through the window practicing dance. And then she came up to me and I was like, oh crap, like what, you know? And She's like, I really love what I saw. And we're doing a diversity day performance at Orange High School where I went to in Cleveland. And we would, and I would love for you to perform. I know it's like a last minute thing, but are you free in a couple of weeks? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I just, I don't feel comfortable because I don't know how the other students will re react to it. So I, 
I decided to do it because my dance teacher said, I think this will be good for you. And my dance teacher at the time was Sujata Srinivasan in Cleveland. And I did my Arangay Trim with her as well. And she said, I think this will be a good experience for you. You should do it. And it's, and I think it'll be good as you prepare for your Arangay Trim later on, if you wanted to invite your school peers to it. So I performed Adi Kundad to, you know, Sudhara Gunathan's Adi Kundad track, you know, and I I was kind of very, very nervous before going on. And then I just went and performed. And as soon as I finished performing the piece, which I had just learned, I heard like a thunderous applause and cheering from all the kids in the audience. And I was just stunned because I had felt like such an outsider. And this was during the beginning of my senior year. So fast forward to the end of senior year. And at that point, I started getting invited to parties um, because people started to see more of the authentic side of me and they actually vibed with it. So I actually used this um, idea of drishti about perception and about intention in my graduation speech, complementing the openness of my peers and their perception of Indian classical dance and for, you know, appreciating the sincerity with which I loved to dance and, and embracing that. And that was my experience with this particular um, stanza. And I I felt very strongly attached to Yato Hasta very early on. It wasn't like I thought about it as an adult and I'm coming to this realization. So one of the questions that I have for you is, how has your understanding and your relationship with this particular shloka um, been over time? Has it evolved? Has it, Have some parts of it stayed steady? That's a very good question. I think for me, um, a lot of what really grounded me in my identity as a dancer was centered on my high school experience because it became my identifier in college. But what I lacked was traditional scholarship at that point. I did my out engagement and I was just performing sort of aimlessly. And when I decided to uh, move to India in 2000, uh, 2007, 2008, um, my parents wanted me to go into a graduate program of some sort. And I wanted to take a gap year from neuroscience and to go back to it. And then I decided in that interim to see what dancing full-time would be like. And then I decided to make the decision to switch over from neuroscience to dance. And they said, why don't you enroll in an MA program so that you go to graduate school, but in something that you love. So I enrolled in Madras University at the time, and they had a MA in Bharatanatyam pro- program there. And I was reintroduced to the Abhinaya Dharpana. At that point, I really did not know any Hastaviniyogas or anything like that, but I remember this quotation being told to me that it's from Abhinaya Darpana. But I think going through that text and then having to study other texts that are in different languages besides Sanskrit and going into Tamar, for example, Bharata Senapatiyam and all these other texts which had said similar things about Drishti. And then, of course, um, Going into depth about Abhinaya especially, I think what I have taken from this especially is um, the power of gaze being the central focus of our dance style, where it not only is from the core, 
but the gaze is extremely important. And so from a technical point of view, everything starts from the core and everything starts from the eyes. And then from there, the art form starts to build and the movements and the adobu start to build from those two points. Like, where are you looking? Why are you looking? Um, where is your body positioned? Time for an aside. One of the things that makes the study of ancient texts interesting and relevant is who wrote the book, when, and what does that mean? So, Yatohastasadodrishti is most commonly attributed to Nandikeshwara's Abhinaya Darpana. And the Abhinaya Darpana was um, at one point believed to be anywhere between the 5th and 13th century, which is where um, we say the 9th century at one point um, in conversation. Now, because of its similarities to other texts that have been dated, um, it is believed that this is closer to the 13th century. And that shows that, you know, research in academia revises our understanding of these books over time. And related to that, this very same shloka was found in Parshvadeva Sangeeta Samayasara, which um, is from between the 11th and 12th century um, CE. This is actually um, from... Um, work um, for publication by Dr. Yashoda Thakur, looking into the sixth chapter of Sangeeta Samyasara. And today we think of dance and music as separate entities. But in a lot of these texts, the texts focused on dance always talked about music. They had a chapter dedicated to music. And the texts focused on music always had a chapter dedicated to dance. And they were in conversation. And as researchers look at these books in relation to each other, they start putting together a more complete picture of who was dancing, when, and why. Just to take a moment to talk to you about Abhinaya. Abhinaya is a very important aspect of many Indian classical dance styles, and it is widely referred to as, quote, expressive dance. But it's actually much more than that. Abhinaya is a sophisticated language that combines hand gestures, body language, and facial expressions, and it's used to elaborate and to bring out text and subtext. And in terms of the way it manifests in dance pieces, we often dance to a line of poetry or a line of text or a song, lyric, and the words are basically enacted through more than just mime, but through an expressive language that also interacts with music. And this is Abhinaya. But I was also curious about, you know, for you, Amea, when did you discover the power of, you know, having a solid understanding of text and how has it influenced your practice and where you're going with the um, knowledge that you have of the various texts that have informed our dance traditions in Southern India? So specific to this particular shlokam, it's actually a very good example because it 
essentially was introduced to me like a manual, a rule book, right? This is how it needs to be done. Where your hands are, that's where your eyes should be. So then as a very young dancer, learning and working on my, you know, fundamentals, it was, okay, let me make sure my hands, as they move, my eyes are following that. And when I was taught, I wasn't really taught how to bend for the most part. Um, instead, the hand movements and the feet movements were what were taught, usually feet first, and then the hands were added on. And that was it. And then you just drill and drill and drill. And it was kind of part of it was watching what more senior students were doing and trying to figure out what it was as a 10-year-old. Um, and the other part was, you know, oh, there's this locum and it means this. Well, let me try to apply it. When I'm doing each step, I'm just going to use my eyes to follow the hands. And so even when I went into items, early on, it was very much, you know, my eyes tracing the movement of my hands and knowing that as I do that, look, my torso is shifting and I'm bending and I'm getting all of that. And the promise that I was told is, as long as your eyes are in sync with your hands, your body will bend the way it's made to bend. You will look good doing the movement. Exactly. So that's where it's like from the core and from the eyes, right? And that's sort of, that's sort of like where, um, from a technical point of view, this idea of yato hasta really kind of gives you the clue about body control, about the kinds of movements and the geometry that you carve into space too, right? Yep. And I, I, I think body control is it because at some point, for example, one of the first items that we learn in, in Kuchpuri, in the Vampati Bani, is Brahmanjali. And it opens with a sequence where you're doing puja, you're offering flowers and our arati to Shiva. And at one point I realized when he is there in front of me, why would I be staring at the the arati plate? I'll be staring at his face. So then I started shifting how I was dancing so that I wasn't just using my eyes to follow my hands. But my body was already so conditioned to move in that soft circular way to follow my hands that even though my eyes were looking straight ahead, my body was continuing to respond that way. But it was a journey to get to that point. And I don't know that if somebody had explained that to me when I was first learning the piece, that I would have gotten there as naturally to my body. It's interesting because um, Puja, Kuchipuri starts off with a bang <laughs> in terms of Ardabulu, right? Yeah. And Jatilu that you have at the very beginning. So Tam, Digitigite, already has intense um, concentration that's required in order to to match and to sync up the Drishti with the Hastas, with everything together, in terms of the way it's taught in many schools now. In Bharatanatyam, our first piece... Or and our first ardavu is very simple looking, not easy to execute, but simple looking. Um, in like the tat ardavu, our drishti is sama drishti, straight. 
And you're not taught to really move the eyes or anything like that, just straight. And you're just stamping the feet in isolation. So then Drishti changes in the first piece that we learn traditionally called the Alaripu, which Alar means a blossom. Alaripu is the blossoming of a flower in Tamar. So with Alaripu, um, it's the blossoming of movements that are small and minute in nature to full-bodied movements. And it always starts with the eyes. So tat tei tei yum tat tam, the eyes dart right and left to the side. And depending on the nade of the alaripu, it has different cadences. But it always starts with the eyes. In the olden days, they used to have a flicking of the wrist, which doesn't really happen as much now um, at the beginning. But it's a very, it always starts from the eyes and then the core holds you in place. And then it builds that way. So like Bharatanatyam kind of starts off in that way with Drishti. And then um, it just becomes more and more um, developed as you go through the Adavu system from Tattadavu to Natadavu to Paichaladavu, all the other Adavus that come after that. And I think what's interesting is what you're beginning with is essentially... It's body control. It's a nritta piece. And with Brahmanjali, that is a big jump for, you know, somebody who's been learning steps and jatis, nritta, over to, you know, doing shloka abhinaya for other shlokas from the abhinaya darpana. And um, also doing emotion, right, emotional expression, which goes to the second half of the shlokam where you're talking about um, the manas and bhava and rasa. And on one level, it's, you can approach it in a very simplistic technical approach, right? Are my hands moving correctly and are my eyes in the right place? But then if you peel it back, what you're doing is an offering to the Lord of Dance. You're offering yourself as a dancer to the Lord of Dance. And you can set an intention, and this is something that I've found in my practice over the years. You can set an intention, and if I practice today and I say, I'm going to do this to the best of my technical ability, then my drishti, not my necessarily my eyes, but my focus is on technical execution. And that feels differently, even if it's the same item, than on the day where I'm dancing and I'm just enjoying the song. This is a familiar piece. It feels like coming home and I'm just doing it. Versus when I'm doing the same piece and um, listening for um, the underlying meaning, right? Oh, first we are talking about Shiva and then we go to Siddhendra Yogi and then we're going to, and, and you know, the order in which the different... Um, Entities are invoked within the song. So depending on where my focus is, how the song and the choreography feels, and therefore how I feel about the piece changes. And the goal is always that the audience feels, um, they feel connected to what they are seeing. And that is where, where rasa is produced. But I would imagine that if I were doing this with a focus on technical perfection, the rasa produced is very different than when I'm dancing this um, focused on 
you know, devotion. I'd like to take a moment to do an aside on the terms bhava and rasa, because I think it is a source of, um, you know, investigation. And it's also a source of inquiry, because I think for a lot of our intended audience, some people will wonder, um, is bhava really different from rasa? And from the rasa theory perspective, it is very different because bhava, in simplistic terms, this is a very complex theory refers to what is depicted by the performer, actor, actress on stage, or what is conveyed by the set scenery, the mise-en-scene as it's called, the music, the musicality, even the stage auditorium itself is a character. That all depicts something, and that is all conveying something with an intention for an audience to have some sort of experience or rasa. I think when I really got it was the example that um, someone gave was if you see someone kicking a puppy, and I know this is a very terrible example, but it sunk. The, the, Animal they, cruelty. <laughs> it sunk in. If you see someone kicking a puppy, um, you don't feel the pain the puppy feels, but you immediately feel either anger or ayo, like the the karuna, right? Then, so that's one of the two rasas that might be produced because of what you witnessed. So that is the difference between the bhavam, which is what the puppy feels. Don't hurt puppies. Um. <laughs> but yes, do not try this at home, please, 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 please. Um, but also, so that is the bhavam. And then the rasa is, I just saw this happen. And I feel like, you know, that visceral response to what I have seen. So that is the difference that really sunk and clicked for me for the difference between bhava and rasa. See, I think also another illustrative example directly from dance, um, you'll encounter in especially Kuchipudi and Bharatanatyam dance music, padams and javali in what is called the shingara genre. Shingara, of course, being one of the primary rasas of the um, rasa theory, and that is the overall aesthetic experience of romantic love, or just love as we know it in that sense. But what you may see in Shingara on stage may not necessarily just be love. It could be somebody in argument with somebody, but you know that there is a romantic undertone or there's something on stage that tells you these are two lovers in quarrel. And that is what bhavam and rasam basically refer to. Somebody on stage may not be literally making love, but you'll know that it's about love because there's so many signifiers of it, whether it's from the performers themselves, the music itself, or the scenery itself. You'll just know if it's done with that intentionality that is meant to be clearly articulated. And that is sort of the point of Indian classical dance is to provide that very clear and visceral experience of some sort, where it, where especially Abhinaya expressive dance can be abstract, but a lot of times it is used in a very concrete way to achieve rasanubhava, the mingling of when the performer's intention and the aesthetic experience of the audience align with one another. So that actually um, reminds me of a particular article 
and I'm going to come back and I'm going to insert where it's from because I'm blanking right now, that really shifted my understanding of, of Yatohastastadodrishi, the slokam. Because how I had always learned about it was that this is a manual. It's an instruction manual. This is what you're supposed to do. And what this article said is, it doesn't say where your eyes, um, where your hands are, your eyes must follow. There is no direction. Where hands, their eyes. It is capturing where the performer is in that moment. In that moment, all of this is happening. The, you know, synapses are firing between the gestural movement, the emotional state, and the experience um, outside of that performer's body. So that really shifted everything for me because everything changed yet nothing did because this was no longer this is what's supposed to happen it is this is what happens we're just documenting it and i think that is a key shift that has happened for me over the years about my relationship with the texts they're not rule books they are record books they tell us how things are done in the moment of time. And they're guide, they're guides. And I think that one of the challenges that has been to, um, you know, when you're teaching the younger generation is that times have changed. We're no longer in an analog world. We're in an almost fully digital world. And that has impacted the way people communicate, the way that people engage with each other. And so you can see that effect in um, like in Indian classical dance in a very visceral way, because this is something that is, um, you know, in a constantly evolving tradition of dance. And, you know, so whether it's Kuchipuri, Bharatanatyam, Odissi, Kattakali, all these styles have had time and they've proven that they've evolved over time. Like what what we dance now is certainly not what we danced in the 1800s or in the 1700s. We actually don't really know how they danced back then. I mean, we don't have to go that far back. If you compare um, performances now versus performances, like videos you can find on YouTube eight, 10 years ago versus any archival videos that you can find from farther back, even in, you know, the shorter timeframes of, decades or you know years there are market differences in stylistic um choices and execution in what pieces are being performed and um even who's performing absolutely and i think that also influences the way in which we interpret texts now as more of guides versus absolutes see for example um there are certain hastas which are very culturally contextual that are used in Abhinaya, where unless you know about this, you've seen it, or you've experienced it living in India, you don't necessarily know what this means or signifies. But some of the off-kilter responses I've gotten from students, especially young students, when they want to create their own hastas to describe things, will be using pataka, suchi, swiping, swiping right, swiping left. And we have patralekaya, you know, where you have the pataka and then you have the mayura hasta and you're writing. Kids are not writing as much anymore. They're actually on a smartphone or on a computer. So, you know, sometimes people will 
have these sort of hangups say, well, the Abhinaya Dapana doesn't say this. And I'm like, it's a dot, dot, dot. It's an ellipsis. I'm pretty sure that there was, um, I'd have to look it up, but there was a section in the Nati Shastra that said, also other gestures not documented here as to use as suitable. Exactly. So I think, you know, as much as we can say this is an ancient text, it, when if we are saying it is an ancient text and it is a um, a text that is sort of a, a guide, well, they're saying figure it out if there, it's not already in the book. And that means we can explore. And I think that's a key point about this whole podcast is to talk about some of these issues that are there about what is termed classical, which we'll talk about in future episodes, what is termed as lakshanam or grammar, and what is termed as, um, you know, what makes Kuchipudi Kuchipudi, what makes Bharatanatyam Bharatanatyam, and what does history tell us about that? Because the history of India as we have learned through the textual tradition of dance, was one that was very fluid. The traditional communities, for example, who performed um, dance and music and that were termed as classical had freely exchanged ideas. So styles that are now really codified and looking a certain way now may have not looked like that back then because there was a sharing of information among traditional communities who were performers. And so and so part of this is also to dispel the myth that Bharatanatyam Kuchipudi they're part of a 2000 they're 2000 years old. We don't know how old those style like the style the originators of these styles are, but we do know that it's part of a tradition of documented dance styles in the Indian subcontinent that is probably around 2000 years old. But we can't say for a fact Bharatanatyam is 2000 years old. We have traditions and parts of it, aspects of its aesthetics, where we can trace its lineage to a text like the Abhinaya Darpana from the ninth century. But there are other parts of it which cannot be explained using just text alone. And I think the other thing that makes this especially fun is that these texts are are moment in time captured, you know, captured. Whoever was writing it captured what was happening then. But in the centuries since, we are in conversation with those texts. For example, um, I talked about how my understanding of that shlokam has evolved and how a specific journal article shifted my perspective. Well, that journal article was written a long time before I became aware of it. But I have now started a conversation with that text and that is now informing my practice. And now that you've heard it here, maybe it'll start informing your practice too. Time for an aside. Philip Bizarilli wrote the article Where the Hand Is in the Asian Theatre Journal in 1987. This article is that um, pivotal article that I talk about quite a bit in, in, in this episode. And I think the reason his perspective is so different from what I and many others have learned within the dance class is because he's coming at it as an actor, not as a dancer. So when you're the actor, your focus is not necessarily on 
external movement, but the ability to embody the character. And as dancers, that is also our responsibility as, you know, South Indian um, or, you know, South Asian performing artists. That is also our responsibility, right? Dance is a part of the theatrical tradition of that complete art that is in the Nati Shastra. So I think it is um, very important for us not to only think about what we do as dancers, but also think about what we do as complete artists. And that means seeing what we can learn from theater, from music, and from literature. So, Kiran, what did you learn today? You know what really resonated with me about our conversation about Yato Hasta? I really loved the way that you highlighted that the grammar, the actual Sanskrit grammar, doesn't order you around to, to do something. There is no like gatie or anything like that that tells you your leads to something or you go to something or you come to something. It's kind of like it's there. Hand, gaze. And so that openness is the way in which we should interpret many of our texts that have informed our tradition. They are not the ones that define our practice exclusively. A lot of it is embodied practice, after all, right? And it's also oral intangible history that is also conveyed, which also continues aesthetics, whether it is now from, you know, when our teachers teach us repertoire. And it is also a way in which, you know, we can refer to the text to guide us, but they are not absolute manuals of instruction. And so, Amea, that brings me to my question about what did you learn today about this particular stanza and our approach to interpretation? What you said that really struck with me was the link between body control and drishti. Because I have connected the relationship between the bendings and the movements and the eyes but i hadn't the, the word control made something click because it it really digs into that word drishti being focus so if you've stuck with us this far we're giving you homework guys um call to action is to think back to some of the early lessons of your dance classes and what did you learn then that has stayed with you until now? Has it evolved over time? Has it stayed constant? And so we'd love to hear from you with your responses. So check us out on social media. You can find us at Off The Beat Dance on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also email us at offthebeat.dance at gmail.com or visit us on our website, offthebeat.dance. And if you have any specific questions for either myself or Amea, you can also follow us on our Instagrams. Mine is at Kieran Dance and Amea's is at Amea G. King. Thank you so much. See you next time on Off the Beat, a dance podcast by Amea and Kieran. Tadi, Tadi, Tadi,
Today's episode would not have been possible without the incredible support and encouragement of many people, including Andy Rode of Audio Knots for Audio Engineering, Sangeeta Kaushik for graphic design on our logo, Sharada Jammi and Sri Sai Narayana Organization for recording equipment and space, Dr. Yashoda Thakur for sharing her research on Parshvadeva, Dr. Vaidehi Rajagopalan for sharing archival photos, and finally, a very special thanks to Wesley Beeks and Bertel King Jr. Like what you heard? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. We'd love to hear from you.